Hi, this is Karen Harvey, and you're listening to Fashion Tech Forum in the studio. I think back in the day, it was a very masculine form of leadership where it was leading from this place that was kind of removed, unemotional, and I think that that's all changing. I don't think we're there yet, but yes, I think that, exactly. you know, when I think about the kind of leader I want to be, I want to inspire my people. I want to push them to do better. I want to be empathetic and um, I want to drive them hard. I do drive you yes. know, my people hard, but I, I also hope that they see a human side to me. Today's episode was recorded from NASDAQ Market Site in Times Square and is part of a new series of episodes that KHC will release in partnership with NASDAQ leading up to our live conference happening here at Market Site on April 11, 2023. While many of you already know Kristen Patrick by name, you may not know all of her work. Remember GAP's partnership with Bono and Project Red? Halle Berry's 007 collection for Revlon? Or you may not know that she was the first person to step into a global chief marketing officer role for Pepsi. These are just a few of the groundbreaking moments of Kristen's career where she has played a significant role in transforming the brand she's worked with and was one of the leaders on a global scale, redefining the connection between marketing and popular culture. Kristen is also a longtime and very dear friend who I'm honored to have as my guest today. In this episode, I'm excited to share Kristen's inspiring career journey as I met her when she was only in her early 20s, when she used her precocious and persistent nature to track me down for a meeting one fateful day in Los Angeles. In some ways, it feels like it was just yesterday, but as I reflect on this powerful conversation that we had today, where we literally ran out of time, I realize that Kristen has well used the years that have passed to make her mark on a number of companies that have exalted as a result of her tenure there. Kristen is an extraordinary leader who marries deep data and insights with culture and with a deep connection to current and future consumers. She has that unique gift that so few leaders have, a gut instinct that has always enabled her to drive change fast. While Kristen has many superpowers, such as an exceptional ability to develop and drive both aspirational and granular strategy, she combines these with her innate ability to recognize cultural shifts on a macro level and act upon them to quickly rebuild and recalibrate brands. In some ways, and with all of her gifts, I think this talent is what best defines her as a revolutionary brand and marketing leader whose talent for predicting and leveraging trends is now putting a mark on reinventing a brand that lives in the center of the most important future generation of consumers. Currently EVP and global CMO of Claire's, Kristen continues to move at the pace of change, which is nonstop. She has driven the strategy to reestablish this iconic brand as one that stands for self-expression and creativity, and it is now resonating in the hearts and minds of the latest generations of young consumers, Gen Z and Gen A. Under Kristen, in only 18 months, 
and on an international basis, Claire's has taken its legacy to a new level of innovation and inspiration, from their iconic retail stores and ear-piercing shops to Shimmerville, a digital experience in the metaverse that allows users to explore, work, play, shop, and connect with friends. Claire's new creative partnership with Nicola Formichetti allows Kristen to bring her vision to life across all brand touch points and is already breaking ground and responding to the aspirations of these important consumers. Kristen and I had so much to discuss, we could barely fit it all into this episode. So I'm pleased to announce that Kristen will also be joining us on stage at FTF with some very special guests to finish our conversation. While punching above her weight throughout most of her career, at times causing angst for those who may have been resistant to change, the precocious young woman who found me at a coffee shop in LA has become a world-class global business leader who in some ways is only just getting started. We hope you enjoy this conversation and thank you for joining us in the studio. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm so excited to be here with you. I'm so excited to have you. And before we start, I, I saw you speak at NRF yesterday. You were absolutely brilliant. I've never heard a better explanation about what Gen Z is really thinking mm. about. What are the Zalphas? What is Generation Alpha, Generation A? And you said something that really stuck with me. The person interviewing you said, you know, these are like this and these are like that. And you said, well, hang on. And I'm paraphrasing you, but we have to be careful because things are constantly changing. Mm -hmm. Can you say a little bit about that? Just really diving in on this subject. Yeah. So first of all, this generation Z and alpha lovingly referred to as the Zalphas yeah. because they do have a lot in common. I feel like researchers try to characterize them into this one pool of traits. Yes. And there are commonalities, but what I'm finding, because this is a generation, the alphas in particular grew up in a world where Alexa always existed. I mean, just think about that yes. for a moment. Right. And so I, I, their world is changing constantly. So I think when we say, okay, they're only watching horror films or they're only doing this, yes. I think you get into a really dangerous place. Such a special generation, you know, raising conversations about global warming, raising awareness about some of the school shootings. Yeah. And it is uh, a really, I think strong generation. They have a very strong voice and they want it to be heard by brands and companies. And I think if you're not listening or you're trying to say this is the one way they're going, you're going to get into trouble. This is fascinating. And, and I think also for our audience, and I mean, NASDAQ only has 21 million people out there who will eventually be listening to this and seeing some of, some of our conversation. I think those leading brands right now and knowing that it's a constant pivot with consumers, what would be your advice to them right now, especially if Gen Z is so important to them? You know, for so long, it was the millennials, the millennials, but of course, now things are changing. And then can you define actually, what is Gen Z? Mm -hmm. What are those boundaries or barriers for when they start, when they end? And what is Generation Alpha? If you Google Gen Z and Gen Alpha right. or you do research, the age 
brackets are varied. And one of the things that we had to do actually at Claire's is define what our gen alpha was and what the, when the Z started and sort of ended. So 14 to 27 is gen Z. Okay. And then alphas we characterize as 14 and under. And I think that companies can't rest on their laurels with this generation, like stagnation, a lack of innovation is a very dangerous place to sit. You constantly can figure out what they're feeling and I think where they're going by putting in measures within your own company to have constant feedback loops with them. They talk to you anyway through organic social. Right. And if you have a direct-to-consumer e-commerce platform, you're going to see what they're doing, but they want more of a voice. So we've actually had to set up feedback loops. You know, we have a tranche of consumers that we talk to on a regular basis. What do you think about this product? What do you think about this potential store experience? How do you feel about this partnership with this person? And so they're giving us feedback on a regular basis. And I have to say that it's taken a lot of the guesswork out. Right. Amazing. That's one of the things that I think more and more companies are going to start doing. Well, as you're listening to this feedback, there is sort of a rigorous process for distilling what you're hearing, yes. right? Because you're hearing a lot. So how do you decide? You know, and, and you're not getting information from just one source. Like we're talking to consumers, we're using all of the data and analytics that we're getting from our e-commerce platforms from, you know, we're lucky because we own our own yeah. channels. So we can see what's happening from a traffic perspective. We can see, um, you know, what consumers are buying, how they're navigating through the website. So for me, it's a combination of taking those analytics, but combining it with what's happening from a cultural perspective. Yes, And then the voice of the consumer kind of meshed into all of that. And you know this, but like trend forecasting is an art form. Yes. And it's a combination of hard and fast research and analytics, but it's also combined with, I think, gut instinct for brands. And that is a real skill set and art form, I think. Well, it's a perfect place to go because when Maya and I were talking about this conversation, she said, how do you think about Kristen? And I said, well, so many things, but the two things that I would say have always stood out in my mind, and you and I have known each other a very long yes, time. indeed. I do believe I placed you in your first fashion job. Yes, you did. We will be talking about that. <laughs> okay. But you have one of the most profound gut instincts of any marketer I've probably have ever known or know. And yet you're incredibly strategic. I mean, when I look at the thread of your career, strategy, which is always this thing for people, what is strategy? Mm -hmm. Well, until we see it come to life, as you did with Gap, Mm -hmm. with like Project Red and so many other things, we don't see strategy come into play because I think so many times people think about strategy as, you've got this very analytical strategist who sort of comes in and creates sort of a business plan and strategy, but then there's this crucial brand strategy that comes about as a result of a brand needing to pivot. Mm -hmm. So I kind of want to go back to where all that started with you. I know you're from the Berkshires in Massachusetts very well. Mm -hmm. You and I met when you were 
23, 24, I think. I was, I was really long, young. It's a long time. <laughs> it's a long time. But can you talk a little bit about growing up? Always on this podcast, we ask people to reflect a little bit on how they got to where they've gotten to today. So can you tell us a little bit about that and your family a little bit? So first of all, I live and die by my family. They are everything. Um, very close to my sister and my mom and dad. You know, my mom is Italian. She's first generation. And I think that that has had a massive impact on me. But growing up in the Berkshires, it was a really wonderful experience. You know, it centers you. And, you know, we spent our time skiing and playing sports. And I think that it gave you in that part of the country a lot of time to be creative and thoughtful. There were always art projects to do or, you know, being in the outdoors. I'm reading about and watching TikTok and people are saying, like, go out in nature. And (laughs) I'm like, you know, that's just instilled in who I am. And so I was always really curious about, I think, what makes people tick and and listening to them and understanding, which has come in really handy in business. And I always had a voracious appetite for shopping. (laughs) (laughs) Embarrassed to say, but like it is, it is a passion, you know, fashion, design, art, and kind of watching how consumers move, act, how they're moving through culture. But it all comes down to like that human connection, the empathy. And I'm raising my daughter in Los Angeles, and it's quite different than how I grew up. And I just, you know, want to instill like that moment of quiet where she listens to herself and connects with others as well. Because I think that that has served me really well in my personal relationships, but also in my business decisions. It's really interesting. And I know your dad was, or is still, was was an aerospace mm-hmm. engineer, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Did any of that like filter into the household? Like, how did you see him in that way? And did that inform It's so funny because my dad... And I couldn't be any different in terms of like our yeah. skill sets, right? right? Like, you know, he is concise and he knows how to build things. Like he built our whole house yeah. where I grew up by hand. <laughs> mm. You know, I think what I learned from him was his work ethic. He was a really, really hard worker. I think in general, like in that part of the country, you take care of your own yard, you build your yes, own house. Yes, yes, yes. You know, I learned all of that from him. And he is really analytical in that, you know, he'll look at a problem and he'll come up with like a theory on how to fix it. And we always joke and say that he's rigging things up. Like if he wants to rake the leaves, he has to have like a stunt to be able to make it all work. So there's a little bit of that in me. Um, So I think that's actually where the strategy part comes in. And you're very precise. I mean, I know you well. Yeah. Yeah. A little calculated, Mm -hmm. right? In the best of ways in terms of it's not just the superfluous creative side of me. It's that combined with, I think, that piece that I got from my dad. I think you went to one of the best schools, by the way. We were talking about schools last night in the country, which is Emerson. So many of my friends went there who ended up going into film or into TV. Yeah. And But you went briefly into advertising, I think, right? Yeah, I did. And then you found your way to Disney. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that? Emerson is a really unique school. First of all, it's situated in Boston. That in and of itself is a wonderful town to go to school in. Artsy-fartsy undergrad, you know? I had to learn 
how to be strategic and analytical and learn about operations because I yes. didn't necessarily get all of that yeah. through my undergrad. Um, By the way, most people don't. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I always felt like I was apologizing for yeah, it as yeah. I was moving along. Yeah. And then straight out of college, I actually went to law school. Yes, that's right. I yes. forgot about that. That's and right. I think I realized after the first day that I didn't want to be an attorney. Yeah. And immediately after finishing, I went right back into advertising and marketing. Right. I had always interned in agencies throughout undergrad. Yeah. I really loved it. And so I took my first job um, at Foot and Belding. Yeah. Working on the Mattel account. Amazing. Yes. I did not know that. Yes. And that's kind of, that's, that's And one of the yeah. accounts that they had was Disney. So they created ah, all the toys. Okay. Disney asked me to come and work for them. And, you know, I learned everything there. Right. It was during its heyday. And that was in their licensing for consumer products. Yes. Side, right. And it was like, you know, we were coming off of the Lion King and Pocahontas yes. and Michael Eisner was there and the company was on fire. Mm. And that moment in time, like all of those people that I was working with showed up in other places in my life throughout my career. Amazing. A lot of them. It's a very important lesson for people listening right. to this as well. Yes. A lot of them showed up at The Gap. Yeah. Um, there were a lot of them at Pepsi. Mm -hmm. I really learned about how to build a brand there. Mm. And I learned about content there. I always talk about marketing across content, product, and experiences. And whenever I used to say that, people would look at me like I was crazy. And now everyone's talking about content <laughs> yes. and storytelling. Yes. And that's actually served me very well. That's incredible. So you were almost three years, I think, at Disney. Three and a half or four. Oh, okay. Yeah. Or four years. Yeah. It's a bit of a leading question, but how did you get into fashion? I always wanted to work in like high fashion. And I remember I got a phone call and the recruiter on the phone said that Calvin Klein was looking for somebody to build a sort of mid-tier brand called CK. They needed somebody with licensing experience. And at the time, Disney was best in class at yeah. that. Yeah, I think it was a good place to look for people. But when I heard Calvin Klein... I just wanted the job and I wanted to work there. <laughs> and I remember the recruiter kept saying, well, we need you to meet with this woman. She's based in New York. She comes out to Los Angeles frequently, but we have to get you on her books. And so I was very persistent in meeting with this woman. Her assistant said she may be at this place at this time, but you know, I'm not sure if we can fit you in. And so I put on my best work suit. <laughs> And I went into this coffee shop and met with this woman with a briefcase of all of my work. <laughs> and I placed myself in front of that woman as you <laughs> and begged you to um, put me in front of Calvin Klein. So one of my people called you yes. and, and told you about the job. Yes. And then I was probably avoiding you because you, weren't, sure. you weren't seasoned enough yes, at the that's time. Right. And you stalked me. Yes. And it was the best thing that probably happened for both of us. We yeah. become such good friends. But it was fascinating for me because I don't think anyone had ever done that before. And I and knowing you today, I think some of our audience are at that point yeah. where they're really ready to make that next step, but they don't know how to break through to that mm -hmm. person that has the unlock for that role. What in Lord's name made you do that? How did you think about 
how it would, would be when you showed up in the coffee shop in Beverly Hills to see me? I knew that I had to be prepared. I knew that I literally put a briefcase together of all of my work to show you. And I mean, you were very kind and patient. You're right. I I had no business at that time kind of um, pursuing this job. So I really had to prove to you that this is the way that I think. These are all the things that I've done. And thank God you're generous because I think that you really gave me a chance. But listen, I think for anybody starting off in their career, like that precociousness is necessary and being prepared is necessary and keeping track of all of your wins and the results and telling your story as, and and thinking of yourself as your own brand, I think is incredibly important. You know, I think that index is kind of, you know, an opportunity for um, people to, to do that. So there's wonderful platforms out there now um, for people to do that. You know, before it was me sort of chasing you down with my briefcase. It was the analog days, (laughs) which I think there's great value in. I I remember this so well, and I remember my mind changing during the conversation, saying, you know what? I'm going to go for it. I had, of course, placed your future boss Mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. You did get the job. And, you know, it began a, a real career shift for you. Yes. So from there, you spent about a year there, actually, yes. and then followed Emily Stone, who yes. you worked for, over to Revlon. Maybe take us a little bit through those early days and what you were learning. And and then I'd love for you to really end us for a moment at Pepsi before we get into Claire's, because I really do think there was endeavor along the way. Yeah. And, all of these things. But, you know, many people listening, Kristen, really aren't the people that can cross sectors and cross boundaries the way you have, which I think is incredibly admirable and not a mistake. Mm -hmm. So maybe take us through what it was like at Calvin and then moving into beauty and a little bit about what happened from there. Calvin was a wonderful experience. It was a tough company, as you know, at the time, but I learned so much from being there. And I remember you called me one day and you said to me, how's it going? And I said, it's really tough, you know? And I think fashion is sometimes, and lots of companies are. But you said to me, you know what? Soak up everything. And I I remember you said this to me. You said, because you're going to be really, really happy that you have that background at some point. And I thought about that years later, about how important that experience was. You know, we were launching a mid-tier brand at the time and forming new businesses and the one thing that I learned from them is how to create a brand experience. You know, you've been in their offices. It's concrete floors, white walls. You had to use black paper clips at the time. Yeah, I followed that entire vision in my own company, having learned that from the man himself. And also, I think what was interesting is I remember they had, it was the Calvin Klein color lily at the time. And if you got roses, you had to send them home. (laughs) So like they were really strict on their brand presence. And that is one of the core takeaways for me. And also the use of earned media and PR. Mm -hmm. I think back in the day, like the PR girls at Calvin Klein were sort of everything. And they were socialites and they were influencers of their own back in the day. So true. Right. So taking that knowledge and 
and, and sort of carrying that along with me. After about a year, Emily and I left yeah. and we went to Revlon to start a licensing business for Ronald Perlman. And I think his vision was to take the core equities of Revlon and extend it into other businesses, which Emily and I did. I think Emily left after a couple of years to start a consulting practice. Yeah. And it was at that time that I was sitting at Revlon. And this is another precocious instance <laughs> where I wrote Cheryl Vitali an email and I said, listen, the world is changing. You know, the internet is really important right. and we're still doing heavy television ads. We've got these amazing supermodels who were right. just showing their faces. Yes, These are really amazing women and we should be rounding out the story. And she took a chance too. She said, wow, she goes, I really like your thinking. Why don't you come up, All work right. in the marketing group yeah. and we're going to give you a role where you develop the internet strategy for us. And you are going to sit amongst, you know, the packaged goods marketers and work on sort of cultural marketing. Mm. So I went up there and, you know, one of the things I noticed was that Halle Berry, who was our supermodel, was a phenomenal woman. She was winning an Oscar, first ever African-American woman that year to win an Oscar. And then she was going to be the next James Bond girl. Revlon had two messages. It was color stories and treatment. Yes. The color stories they invented and the sales had been waning. And, you know, there was a woman at the company who used to say brown is the color for the season. And she wasn't connecting it to anything happening in culture. So I think there was like a lack of interest from consumers. Mm -hmm. So I remember I hand drew a point of sale thing, went (laughs) into Cheryl Ronalds, the CEO at the time. And I said, listen, we're going to take Halle Berry. We're going to do a color collection inspired by her as the James Bond girl. So good, Christine. And we are going to link this whole thing to culture, you Mm -hmm. know. And I was either going to get fired, right? Because <laughs> yeah. who did I think I was, really, yes. if you think about it? Or it was going to go really, really well. But, yeah. you know, Cheryl took a chance. Yes, they took a chance. So good. And it ended up being one of the best-selling color stories. And Amazing. what ended up happening was, I think that was such a novel idea. The entertainment industry sort of was watching it. Mm-hmm. And I got a call to go and run promotions for NBC Universal. Yep. And, you know, at the time, it was a good move to get back out to the West Coast for me. And so I ran uh, promotions at NBC Universal. And that was tough, you know, coming into the yes. entertainment industry. They don't necessarily like outsiders. Right. I was Much a, like fashion. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, it took a while to establish credibility. Uh, it was a huge department. Mm. I was very young running a pretty big department. And that was all about spending other people's money and making your marketing seem bigger than your marketing spend. Yes. So they would have a film that came out. I would figure out who the demographics were for the film and think about the themes for the film and then tie it to promotional partnerships. So we were working with Coca-Cola and Pepsi. We were working with Mitsubishi on films like Fast and Furious and developing marketing and PR programs Mm. on a global level to launch these films. Mm. And that idea of partnership I learned really deeply through through that role, dealing with talent, you know, dealing with some of the actresses and models and and sort of linking that to brands. Mm. I learned all about that. And then I got a call, Paul Pressler, who I had worked with at Disney, Disney. took over from Mickey Drexler at The Gap. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He 
new. You know, I think when Mickey left the company, yeah. uh, the innovation kind of walked out the door. And I think Paul knew that. Um, so he set me up in this really interesting role. I sat at the Gap Inc. level and it was all about innovation. And I remember I didn't have a team. I didn't have a budget. And I said to Paul, like, how am I supposed to make this yes. work? <laughs> and what I what I ran into was the presidents and the chief marketing officers on each of the business yes. were like, who is this girl? Why should I trust her? She's right. Paul's person. Right. So I had to get in there and build relationships. Mm -hmm. I had to get in there and give them really good strategies and ideas mm -hmm. um, so that they would want to take a chance. Mm -hmm. You know, I worked across Old Navy, and what I did for each brand was quite different. Old Navy was very much about infusing new thinking into their promotions. Mm -hmm. For Banana Republic, we did a clothing line linked to Memoirs of a Geisha. Right. Oh, so, I remember this. Yes. Yeah. Piper Lime was there yep. at the time. Yeah. We did a partnership with Rachel Zoe mm -hmm. so that she would sort of curate the line and talk. Mm. And we did it before Rachel Zoe was Rachel Zoe. Right. And that relationship went really well. And then I really spent a lot of time on Gap brand. We did a complete teardown of the brand. And it started with bringing in the Boston Consulting Group. We yeah. took a look at the floor space and determined how we eke profitability out of every square inch. Yeah. I think coming out of that, we realized we have to win in denim. Because um, yeah. we walked away from that. And then we did a brand overhaul. Mm. And I started the brand overhaul by bringing in people from different walks of life because, you know, Gap was so much bigger than its stores at the time. And we brought in people from the music industry, the entertainment industry. We brought in, you know, cultural experts and consumers to talk about where the brand could go. Mm. I think one of the things that we walked away with was that in the 60s, it was all about music. So yeah. they had a right to be in music. It was all about social responsibility. Yes. You know, the family had always been engaged in social responsibility and the arts. Yeah. I thought that that sat at the core of the brand. And I remember reading at that time that consumers trusted corporations more than the government to do good for the world. That's an interesting shift right? that's happened. So with over that time. piece of knowledge, mm -hmm. I had a meeting in Los Angeles with Bobby Shriver. Yeah. Who pulled up these hand-drawn boards yeah. and he said, listen, Bono wants to create a way for brands to not just write a check, but to stay in business and continually support his charities. Mm. And I thought to myself, that's really interesting. And, and in some ways, exactly what Gap brand needs. We need to kind of put the heart and soul back into the brand. So I remember I went to Paul Pressler. And I said, I, I think this could be like a jumpstart, a defining gesture to, yes. I think, change the way people think about Gap brand. And he said, no, we don't do partnerships. You need to find things inside yeah. the brand, whether it's, you know, the media buys or just something within the brand, Kristen. And I remember I went to Art Peck and I told him yes. and he said, I think it's interesting. So again, it's Amazing. like you find your people within yes. the company. I brought Bono up to Gap headquarters. Which is huge. And that day is still lore. Like he walked into the lobby and he went inside a steel art piece. Right. And he started singing opera. Uh, so all of these heads like came over the balcony to hear Bono singing opera. But I remember he said to Paul, like, your brand's not cool and you got to do something. This yes. is what I want to do. So we were one of the founding brands of the Red of Campaign. Red. 
And I still think it's... Congratulations on that, Kristen. Yeah, that, that you know, I had believers, though. Huge, you know, art, art really helped me with that. And we were, you know, kind of moving that through the company. I think it, it is still one of the coolest things I've done in the last 10 yes. years. Yes, Art told me that they kept that partnership in place for about 10 years. Yes, they did. A decade, for sure. And I remember the day that it launched in stores and I walked mm. by like a store window in New York City. And I was just you. like, oh my gosh, this yeah. is fantastic. Fashion Tech Forum's theme this year is all about exploring a world emerging from chaos. While we are finally beginning to emerge from a three-year-long pandemic, we are also living in a world that is in many ways still shrouded in chaos. For me, this particular time is about expressing gratitude for my own life while being constantly concerned about those under great duress in the world. This podcast gives us at KHC an opportunity to share our belief in the importance of taking care of our communities and in helping those facing challenges that many of us could never imagine or understand. It is in this spirit that we wanted to forego the traditional sponsorship approach so that we could use this opportunity to give a shout out and some airtime to those who we believe are doing incredible and heroic work to help those who are in much less fortunate circumstances than we are. Every time I read something or hear about the work of World Central Kitchen, Chef Jose Andres's extraordinary organization, I've been practically moved to tears. World Central Kitchen has been feeding thousands of people fresh, nourishing meals as soon as possible after humanitarian climate and community crises since 2010. They build resilient food systems with locally-led solutions driven by the belief that food is a humanitarian right. We are genuinely moved and inspired by Chef Andres's mission and urge all of us to bear in mind his powerful words. You'd be amazed at the power of a plate of food. It can change the world, and so can you. Thank you for taking the time to check out this incredible initiative please visit wck.org to make a donation or to volunteer for World Central Kitchen. So you went to Endeavor, I think, after that, or was there something else in between? I went to Lucky Brand, oh, Liz Claiborne's right. Lucky Brand. That's right, that's right. So the entertainment thing didn't come back for a little while. No, I spent a little more time in fashion. Lucky was bought by Liz Claiborne. Yeah. And, you know, there were sort of two brands that they had in their portfolio that they wanted to sort of emphasize. It was Juicy yeah. and then Lucky. Yeah. You know, they had never had a head of marketing at Lucky. Right. The I, two wonderful Jean founders. Barry, amazing guys. Amazing. Um, you know, they were the heart and soul of the company. It took a while for them to get to trust me. But we, you know, really launched the first global marketing campaign. Yeah. We overhauled their website. Um, and redesigned that experience and launched a loyalty program. So my time there was, I think, a really valuable learning experience for me because I learned all about digital marketing. I learned about, you know, having your own credit card. Working with founders. Working with founders. Yeah. And how to talk to them. Mm -hmm. I think that when Gene and Barry left that company, I think, again, the heart yeah. and soul sort of walked out the door there. Yeah. And then I got a phone call from a gentleman named Mark Dowley, who was working on the Red Campaign with Bono and Bobby Shriver. 
And he said... Such good lessons of these threads, how they continue to show up and connect the dots in our career. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. I've been very lucky in that way. You know, Mark said, hey, listen, I am starting a consultancy within William Morris Endeavor. You know, Ari believes that he sits on top of cultural information and that it can be beneficial to brands and businesses. Mm -hmm. And he was right, because a lot of times the entertainment industry will start working on, you know, scripts uh, and, and finding talent well before these people become famous. And so I went to William Morris Endeavor and set up a consultancy where, you know, we worked with clients like General Motors. We put their their products into films. Chanel, we would tell them, okay, here's talent that needs to be on your radar screen. Right. We helped them launch the J-12 watch at the mm. time, a cologne called Blue. We had a very unique relationship with Polaroid because Ari had an investment in it. Mm. And we acted as their marketing department. Mm. Polaroid was about to be relaunched, you know, taken out of bankruptcy. And we had a $4 million global budget to relaunch this. And so we had to be really clever. We took a million dollars. We made Lady Gaga the creative director. I remember it like yesterday. And she was amazing. I remember. But again, she wasn't Lady Gaga yet. No, she wasn't Lady Gaga yet. She was on the cusp. And she was dating Matthew Williamson at yes. the time. Or is Williams, is that his Williams. name? Matthew Williams. Yeah. And I remember we flew to Tokyo and it was her and Matthew. And she got up and said, this is my vision. I mean, she was right. so done on. She's like, how do I get my pictures out of my phone? Yeah. That's the first product I want to launch. Right. And so we used her social feeds to, you know, mm. amplify everything for that brand. So that that was super cool. We worked with Howard Schultz on the uh, 40th anniversary of Starbucks. Wow. So that was an amazing, amazing time. And we were meeting with the heads of so many companies because they would just kind of come in and say like, you know, how should I be thinking about culture? What do I do? And they would pop in for ideas. And it was at that time that I met the CEO of Playboy, Scott Flanders. Yeah. Again, the company had just been taken private. Yeah. Scott and I sat down and after we left the conversation, I couldn't stop thinking about the Mm. brand. You know, I went back and did uh, research on it. There was something about it in that moment in time. Salvador Dali was an art director on the magazine. The last interview that Martin Luther King Jr. ever gave was in Playboy magazine. There was a whole new leadership team. <sighs> it used to be very much about, it started as a gentleman's lifestyle. I think on the first page of his zine, he said, hey, listen, this isn't a brand for everybody. Right. It's for people who want to live life with a little style, put some jazz on the phonograph, yeah. eat good <laughs> food, drink yeah. good wine, and talk about art. Yeah. He w- had a television show, hotels. Like he was Richard Branson before right. Richard Branson. Right. So I thought there was something really fascinating in that. And I remember reading that for millennials, like, you know, they were confused about their sexuality. Yes. They would watch porn on television, but then when they got behind closed doors, they weren't sure what to do. Mm. And so I thought to myself, what a moment for this brand. That was a hard decision, I have to say. Like, you know, I had to talk to women I admire. I right. think I called you and said, yes. what do you think about this? Yes. I talked to my mom and said, a dad and said, are you going to be okay if I yeah. take this job? Right. I had a daughter at the time. Yes. And I'm proud of what we did during my tenure well, it's there. it's become now... You sort of did the liftoff for it becoming like a cultural movement yeah. almost yeah. with Gen Z. Yeah. So Scott it's kind said of that, fascinating. Scott, the CEO, said, um, you helped me bomb the beach. Yes. And that's, that's what was needed. That's a great compliment. That's huge. You know, we took the brand into, we made it a fashion brand in China. Mm-hmm. We opened hotels. 
We did partnerships with Dolce & Gabbana. We showed up at Art Basel. We actually created a piece of art that we put in Marfa, Texas, and Mm. it was quite contentious because there was a neon sign there. Right. Um, we surrounded the brand with, you know, stylists and tastemakers. But a perfect tastemakers. place, Martha, Texas. Most people don't know what that place really is. Yes. So that's amazing. So that was that was great. And then while I was there, I got a call. They were looking for the first ever global chief marketing officer to go to Pepsi. They never had a chief marketing right. officer. Right. And I remember the job description said, we are looking for a rock star. And I was like, <laughs> that is, that is, I want to be a rock star. <laughs> Um, and that was another time I was super precocious. Yes. Um, I did a vision deck to say like this. They didn't ask me for it. I just right. did it. Right. Of course. Um, I said, this is what I would do with the brand. And, you know, Brad Jakeman mm-hmm. and Indra took a chance on me. Yes. Wow. I remember when I was interviewing with, with Indra, she said, I love your background. She goes, but help me understand the Playboy thing. Right. <laughs> of course. And sometimes I need to explain that. Yes. Yeah. You know, I explained to her why I wanted to do it. I said it was a really cool sort of business case. And she said, let's agree to disagree on that one. <laughs> right. But, you know, Pepsi, I went in at a time when sugar was the next tobacco. Yeah. And I was brought in to like evoke dramatic change to shift from television to digital. Yes. So we, we did Must that. Must have been hard. Yeah, it was hard. Uh, by the way, because I came from Playboy of yes. all places. Yes. I had no beverage experience. Yes. Like those people are smart. They've yes. been at the company for 30 years. Yes. I remember the rumor was that a bunny was coming to the company. Oh my so God. I, I really, I had to overcome that, a you lot. know? Yes. Well, and we talked about that when you had asked me about the Playboy advice. I'm like, you won't be there forever. Yeah. You'll always be explaining it. So yeah. I guess that materialized. Yeah, Yeah. it it is true. And I do explain it. Yeah. I think sometimes when you go into a brand like Pepsi, you don't get to touch the product lineup and the formulations. But I, you know, was there at a time when we were launching a lot of new brands, making the portfolio better for you. Yep. Healthier. Healthier. Better for you that way. Yeah. Yes. We had to take the sugar down in Blue Camp Pepsi around the globe. In China, we put the brand on sparkling beverages like water. Mm. There was a brand stretch study yes. that had to, had to be done. And all of my experience from licensing and yes. you know, stretching brand equity really helped. The way that I think about marketing across content, product, and experiences mm-hmm. came in really handy. I walked into that role um, at a very lucky time. It was uh, a World Cup year. Right. And for, you know, 15 years, Pepsi created World Cup campaigns that encompassed taking the soccer players, putting them on cans, point of sale, and then television and massive global out-of-home campaigns. Yes. Well, the year that I got there, it was in Brazil. It was a very exciting time. And I turned that on its head. I took the soccer players. There were seven yep. of them, Lionel Messi and, you know, the best in the yep. world. I had Danny Clinch shoot the photography mm. to bring that fashion. Right. Huge. And um, he shot them all in black and white. We took street artists from around the world and mm. we had them mess up the photography, mm. red, white, and blue, like mm. all over them. And then we took that art and we made it into a fashion line. Mm. So we did hoodies. We sold it in Colette. Uh, yeah, Amazing. Liberty of London. Uh, I remember we had the windows in Bloomingdale's. Incredible. And it was, a, a, you know, it was skateboards. It was shoes by Del Toro. It mm. was Puma was a partner. And I think people were like, what are you doing? <laughs> and it didn't just stop there. It was, you know, we called it the art of football because it was about the art, the fashion. There was a music mm. component to it and then short films. <laughs> 
so smart. And I remember that year, we were not the official sponsors, but there was an article, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal, and it said Pepsi won the World Cup because our earned media was That's so loud. so huge. And it was after that that we became, we slipped into the number two slot. Yeah. Um, you know, it was always Coke, Diet Coke, Pepsi. Yes. And so that was just like such a good defining gesture in terms of like, this is how- Recalibrating you- the Coke and Pepsi wars is yeah. like a very big deal. Yeah. And yeah. this is how you need to market, you know? Yes. And so I think I gained a little credibility, but I always felt like I was trudging uphill there because, you know, I was brought in to be a change maker. Which, by the way, for everyone listening, always sounds exciting. And we always know that we can do that, but we'll always face forces within an organization that don't want change and are afraid of change. I mean, that is inevitable. And I think we don't talk about that enough. Yeah. It's hard work. It's really it's hard work. It's easy to fail. Yes. It's easy to fail. You feel like the odd man out. And and I think you can appreciate this because you work with so many like creatives. Sometimes it's hard for them in structured organizations yes. to be successful yes. and to get their points Brutal. across. Yes. And that was a skill set I had to learn too. Because I think when it, I was earlier on in my career, I used to blurt ideas out. Yes. I knew where we needed to go, but I didn't have that strategic linchpin at that point. So I really had to learn that. I know you've learned it because I see the way you're executing now. And it's a very important lesson to learn, but it can also feel quite suffocating. And as a highly creative marketer, Mm -hmm. and I know you own that in a very big way. And now it's, of course, incredibly necessary because without that creativity, marketing is just flat and plans and without that creativity and that understanding about how to bring ideas to life, it just simply doesn't work. Yeah. Because I think too, what you're really good at and you probably learned it there in a certain way is getting your ideas to land. You know, I talk all the time about that storytelling Mm -hmm. ability that with the intention of really landing an idea and getting people to really see it and embrace it and move through that resistance. And part of it is making it about how people win, how a brand wins, and maybe talk a little bit about that. What you're talking about, the change management of it all is a perfected skill. I think that when I did that Revlon thing that we talked about, I think I smashed the idea down from the top through the organization. Right. And I think I, I upset some people. Yeah. And so I learned... After that, when I got to Gap to take something like Red and like really partner with all of the people at the organization, you know, Kyle Andrews was there at the time, Jackie Leonard, just this great group of women. And we all banded together to get this done. And that is where the magic happens because they had so much experience that I didn't have. And so it was, I think, the combination of all of us pushing this and then to institute all of that change at Pepsi you know, I, you have to find your people. Yes. I read this HBR article once on change management and they said, there's going to be three tranches of people. Yeah. There's going to be the people who are never going to move and change. There's going to be the ones that are sitting on the fence, like arms folded, watching you. Okay. Like prove it to me. Yeah. And then there's going to be the ones that are like on board with you. Right. So you take the ones that like believe in it, get them to help you build it and add their own ideas. And then hopefully those fence sitters come along. Yes. And then sometimes you have to make hard decisions about yes. 
with where we're going, do you want to be at this organization? Yes. But I think that that is a perfected skill set, and I'm I'm still learning along the way. I'm sure I make a lot of uh, mistakes. And did you have a team at Pepsi? I can't remember. Or were you more kind of leading different groups yeah, I along had a the team. way? I had a team. So I started off overseeing the Pepsi brand. Then yeah. I started to oversee the total beverage portfolio. So I had people working on, you know, Mountain Dew and all of the different brands. And then what I was able to do at Pepsi, and I'm so grateful for that experience, I really became astute at operations. I became astute at running a P&L. I became a global leader, yes. a really global leader because the organization is so highly matrixed. Yes. And I finally got to that point in my career. Yes. At that moment in time where that all started to come together for me. I love the way you articulate even the story of, of really getting there. And I would be remiss if I didn't ask you. So today, how do you think about leadership today? And I know that sounds like a very sort of standard question, but genuinely, what are the most important things for you, for a company, for future leaders? Like, how how do you think about it right now? It's not an easy time. No, it's not an easy time. I think back to like leaders that I learned from and inspired me. I watch them and what I don't want to do and kind of make a mental list. We sometimes learn more from people who lead in a certain way and that's right. check that's how I won't be That's right. as I go forward. And then I think about how I want to be treated. Yeah. And I think that leaders should inspire. I think leaders should lead, but I think they also have to get in and roll their sleeves up. Yes. Because I think that those leaders that are hands-off, mm-hmm. what is inspiring is when they jump in full yes. force. I think that leaders now need empathy. Mm. And I think that's a new conversation in business, actually. And I I think in some ways women are leading the charge around that. I think that that's incredibly important to listen to the people you're working with. I think back in the day, it was a very masculine form of leadership where it was leading from this place that was kind of removed, unemotional. And I think that that's all changing. I don't think we're there yet, but yes, I think that, exactly. you know, when I think about the kind of leader I want to be, I want to inspire my people. I want to push them to do better. I want to be empathetic and um, I want to drive them hard. I do drive you yes. know, my people hard, but I, I also hope that they see a human side to me. I know they do. And it really leads us into sort of what is the marketer of today And that word empathy for me is huge. In Mm -hmm. fact, Fashion Tech Forum this year will be held here at MarketSite at NASDAQ headquarters. And one of the most important topics or frameworks that we'll be talking about is empathy. And I, I believe that empathy has gone to the top of the list of what's required of CEOs and all leaders in that C-suite or wherever you're leading in an organization. You need a lot of empathy to work with teenagers and that Gen Z and that Gen Alpha. And I think what we begin to see is, in my view, is that people are holistic. Mm -hmm. In other words, pre-pandemic, and 
pre much of the very important activity that's been happening sort of as a result of that, I think was this, like, this is my work self. This is my life, my personal life. I was never able to do that. So I had to launch my own companies. Mm -hmm. I wasn't very good at creating those separate. I didn't want to create those separations. It was a lot of work. And I found it from my own mental health perspective, very, very challenging. But I think today we have to realize that, and people talk about this all the time, but you're Zooming with your team and their kids are darting in the background. They're Dogs are barking Mm. and jumping up. And then all of a sudden there's, you know, a screaming baby somewhere. Like we... We saw into people's lives. Yes. And it had to hit most leaders in that this is their real life. Mm -hmm. Not just what they have to do for you. So it's a big shift. and, And I think people are demanding for that recognition, that understanding, that empathy, even commutes, of course, are keeping us. It's not just the driving and it's keeping us from the rest of our our family, but yet we need to work together. So how do you think about all of this? And then moving into Claire's, we have so little time left, but you're in a way bringing the consumer so close to the center of your daily life, of your brand's daily life. But a lot of empathy is required for these kids also today. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, that was a lot. Yeah, sorry <laughs> um, about that. No, it was, I, it's like every point that you yes. said I wanted to comment on, you know, just to link back to something that we were talking about around leadership. It's like, you're on this earth for a finite amount of time. And, you know, there's this, there's this saying that I love, which is like people don't remember what you did for them, but they remember the way you made them feel. And I I love that, that, right? And so the empathy is incredibly important, both from a leadership perspective, but I always talk about, like, even with my marketing programs, like, how do you make them human? Yes. Because sometimes I look at, like, glossy pictures, and I don't think that's what motivates people. Mm. I think that there has to be the rounding out of the story and and that touch of humanity and everything, some emotional part of it. You know, Claire's is, you know, again, talking to Gen Z and Gen Alpha is probably the toughest generation. I feel really lucky because my daughter's a Zer. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so it's like I have, you know, a, a whole case study going with her and her friends. But they are, you know, leading the charge on mental health, which we never talked about in, yes. in a work capacity. Yes. So I think you're right. I think COVID brought up all of these issues, getting to see into people's lives. And I think this generation is pushing that conversation forward even more. This is a generation who lost two and a half years of their lives. They didn't go to school. They've got developmental issues. They've got, you know, really bad anxiety. Yes. So I think that astute leaders and leaders who are in some way spiritually attuned will feel that. Yes. And I think that the ones who, you know, still have that mentality of an emotionless work environment, I think you feel that in the energy of the company and the products. Yes. So I've been told I have so little time left. I have two quick things. Okay. Into the business of Claire's, you have been there a year and a half. Yeah. You have done more in 18 months than almost any leading executive, particularly in marketing, I've witnessed in a really long time. Thank you. What I always say about you is she's brilliant. She's strategic. She has 
uh, line of sight into the future, but she runs fast. Yeah. This time, you've done all those things, but you're doing it with precision. Mm -hmm. You've launched Shimmerville in the metaverse. Yes. You are bringing incredible new creators yes. into the environment. You're bringing the voice of all of your consumers. You're going to launch new categories. I'm not sure what I can talk about yeah. here, but you are. Mm -hmm. You have a partnership with a CEO who's really just saying, please go do this and mm -hmm. make this happen. You have Europe and North America, which are not the same thing. Yeah. So you're launching all of these all at once. You're creating content. You have your own studio. Yep. And Claire's is based in the Midwest. Yes. Which is not necessarily the center of culture. Can you give us a little bit as we sort of go out here? What has been the unlock? What was Claire's when you got there? And where do you see it going from here? So Claire's, 50-year-old company, global company, as we, we talked about, it ran a fleet of retail stores. And this idea of, we always used to say Gap was bigger than its doors. Yes. There was something about Claire's where I believed it could be bigger than its owned yes. and operated fleet of retail stores. Not every retailer can do that or, or extend into these other businesses or opportunities, but I believed that Claire's could because consumers told us that when I first got there. Yes. I talked to a lot of kids yes. who said, hey, we love you, want more from you. The second thing is because we pierce ears, you enter the brand during a, a big rite of passage. Yes. So there's a, an emotional connection that existed, Amazing. which was great. Yep. The other thing it had going for it is it's just fun. Like it makes you happy. There's an agelessness and a timelessness about Claire's. Yes. Like you walk in and it's just, it's just fun. <laughs> and so, so it's like, how do you take all of that and really build a brand? And I think that, you know, we're starting to talk about it as a brand and distinct businesses, you know, our owned and operated channels, our consumer products business, where we're selling in Macy's, Gallery Lafayette, our e-commerce platform. Now we're in the metaverse. We'll continue to probably go into content, but Everything starts and ends with what I learned at the Walt Disney Company. What does the brand stand for? Yeah. And then at the heart of that, where can you take it? Where can you take it from a content perspective, a product perspective, and an experiential perspective? Well, it's a good thing you're going to be speaking at Fashion Tech Forum because we have so much more to talk about I'm here. I'm so excited. And I want to do that. But I would be remiss because the search consultant in me has to ask this question. <laughs> I know you're incredibly happy at Claire's, but I see more for you when you think about the future of your career. Like, how do you, how do you think about it? I'm ready to take everything that I've learned and really lead and run a business or brand. That's kind of what I see as my next step. Definitely having so much fun at Claire's right yeah. now. And I definitely want to leave that company in a, in a better place. Yeah. And um, I think we're doing amazing things. I'm very proud of the team and, you know, all of my executive leadership team and everybody there. But yeah, I definitely want to put my mark on something amazing. Well, I know you will. This has been so much fun. I could have gone for another hour. Oh, my gosh. Uh, indeed. Thank you. thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed our program. You can subscribe to Fashion Tech Forum in the studio wherever you like to listen to podcasts. 
This season of Fashion Tech Forum in the studio is being taped from NASDAQ Market Site in Times Square. It is co-produced by Ron Barron and his team, Natasha Puri, Leah Danley, and Sarah Thadhani from NASDAQ. It is also co-produced by Michael Simonelli and Megal Janardin of Charts and Leisure, and by my wonderful co-founder of FTF and Index, Maya Wojcik. This program is executive produced by Jason Oberholzer and me, Karen Harvey. Our theme music was written and performed by the amazing Michael Simonelli. <laughs>